0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care
1: they need during the pandemic and beyond.
0: Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Carice. As a new semester gets underway, we wanted to turn our focus to undergraduate medical education to get a sense for how students and academic leaders are faring in this very complicated time to be in that environment. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Kim Tartaglia to raise the line today to be our guide. Dr. Tateglia is a professor of medicine in the Department of Internal Medicine at the Ohio State University Wexner College of Medicine, where she also serves as academic program director for the College of Medicine's Med three year, director of the I Am Well program for internal medicine residents, and director of faculty mentorship. She also serves on the Council for Clerkship Directors in Internal Medicine. In addition to internal medicine and pediatrics, she's board-certified in health and wellness coaching and lifestyle medicine. Her research interests include undergraduate medical education, performance coaching and mentorship, and physician well-being. And thanks very much for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: We have a lot to talk about with all those involvements that you have, but let's start first with learning more about you and what first got you interested in medicine and then pediatrics.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I had no... Experience with healthcare. My parents didn't go to college, no one in my family's in healthcare. Um, So, as I was thinking about what to do after high school, I found myself in the guidance counselor's office, um, sitting there looking at books. And I knew I wanted to be in a helping profession, but I didn't know within that. I knew I liked science. And so, I was literally flipping through pages of what does a physical therapist do? And what is that training? What does a social worker do? And what is that training? Had experience as a patient. To know what doctors did, Um, but ultimately went to college majoring in biology with the sense that I, you know, was leaning towards medicine and medical school, um, but really had to go in and do the work of figuring that out and learning more about it. So during, I think I used college as an exploration time to figure out if medical school was right for me. And um, I would say ninety percent of the people that you know I went to college with either went to medical school or they went to graduate school. And so not being the creative type that would uh, really thrive in a research, a, a you know, a full research career, I lean towards medical school.
0: And when you're in med school, because a lot of uh, students obviously struggle with this, how did you start to narrow down your options for a specialty?
1: Yeah. I, so I went to medical school, I think, with a bend towards primary care, thinking family medicine, internal medicine, et cetera. And I met a group of residents that were seemingly to me the most compassionate, very intelligent residents, and they happened to be uh, doing a combined residency in both internal medicine and pediatrics, or MedPeds for short. And to me, that felt like the best of both worlds. I could get robust training in adult medicine as well as get robust training in pediatric medicine. And like I said, the role modeling that they did, you know, without intention really showed me that they're the type of physician I aspire to be. And so that was the first time in my career where I felt like I had found my people.
0: And normally somebody with that combo, do they go into family medicine as a practice?
1: No, uh, so you get board certified in both internal medicine and pediatrics, and you have really the full gamut of specialties within internal medicine or pediatrics available to you. Um, Some do want to do outpatient primary care in both fields, and they may work with family medicine doctors, or they may work in a combined practice. Um, Or what I did is I went into hospital medicine, and so I did inpatient care for pediatrics at our local children's hospital, and I did adult care uh, at Ohio State. And so kind of married, went back and forth from adults and pediatrics throughout the years.
0: Do you enjoy one more than the other?
1: No, I, I think I enjoy them for different reasons. I won't tell so, either,
0: either population group.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pediatrics is really refreshing. Um, in the hospital, I tend to have younger patients. It's like a bimodal curve, actually. the The types of kids who get hospitalized are the babies and the young toddlers or the adolescents. And they get hospitalized for different reasons. And then when I take care of adults, it's a lot of... More complexity, chronic disease, severe illness. Um, And so they use different parts of my brain, they use different parts of my heart. And so I appreciate the opportunity to have that variety. That's
0: a great way to put it. So, the other choice in front of med students is uh, whether to go the academic route or not. And you obviously went the academic route. So, do you remember what your thinking was about that? And, you know, when did you sort of solidify the sense that that was the right path for you?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I think there's probably a bias in medical education training towards the academic route. It's what you see uh, going through residency for the most part. Um, I, so I was at an academic center for my residency. And so that was what I was surrounded with. And so for me, I think it was kind of like the default mode, um, I, especially because I thought that uh, one, being around a robust training environment would help keep me a strong clinician, um, but it would also give me the opportunity to teach, to do the quality improvement work I loved and then continue to grow as a professional. And so I was really drawn to that academic um, side of things, although I appreciate just as equally if I had wanted to live in an area where I could really serve the underserved in a private focus. I think that, you know, would be equally fulfilling. But for me, the academic route was available. I think MedPeds is a little bit of a niche field in that it's not accessible in all geographic areas and in all practice environments. And so one of the places it tends to be more readily available is the Midwest and um, in academic environment. So I think that's probably also what drew me to staying in academics.
0: So for med students that, you know, have the concern about an academic career where they've got to do clinical practice and research and teach and all of that and worry about how they could juggle and manage it all, what, what are your secrets to success in that regard?
1: Yeah, you know, I think for healthcare you know, learners in, in all areas in medicine and nursing and, and all the other areas. I think there's uh, what I've learned throughout my career is there's so many different ways to make an impact that there's not one path to success and there's not one path to, to be impactful. And so for me, clinical research or bench research was not really what um, sort of drove me. and And I was able to find academic opportunities within medical education and educational research as well as within quality improvement and patient safety research. And so those were the areas that I tended to focus on. They were most meaningful to me. I felt like I had some skills to provide and really was able to develop a career in those areas. Um, So for any learners out there, they're thinking, well, I'm not also interested in medical education. Perhaps you're interested in social justice or patient advocacy um, or a whole host of numbers number of of topics where you can develop a career. And so I would encourage you to just really think broadly about what it means to have an impact. And we don't need to be so narrowly focused in doing, you know, research and publications this is the only pathway to success.
0: Before we get into some specifics on the various roles you play at OSU Wexner, can you give us an overview of the school itself and what you think are its particular strengths?
1: Sure. So I'm at Ohio State. University in Columbus and, uh, you know, I consider it a fairly large public university, you know, generally speaking, but also the medical school is rather large. As far as medical schools go, we have about 800 students plus dual degree students. And so, you know, that I think presents some challenges, but one of the strengths is that OSU really tries to make it feel small for its, the student experience with a lot of personal touches to faculty. And it, whether it be in small groups or one-on-one, uh, a number of different programs for learning and for mentorship already built in into the curriculum. Uh, So I consider that a strength. And I also, you know, about 10 years ago, we embarked on a major curriculum revision, at least implemented it, and and really shifted the focus from not just two years of book learning and then two years of clinical learning, but really integrating early clinical learning six weeks into the curriculum, integrating service learning through community health projects uh, through health coaching, and through their uh, preceptorship. And so, you know, I think it's that combination of things that um, it's not either or, it's not studying the books or studying the patients, but that we have to integrate that. And that the physician of today and tomorrow needs a broad set of skills in order to help make this healthcare system work. Um, acknowledging that and implementing that in, like directly into the curriculum, uh, I think is one of our strengths as well.
0: So, as I noted at the beginning, it's an incredibly complicated time uh, for healthcare providers and for medical educators. And with the pandemic not completed, but let's say with it mostly in our rearview mirror at this point, what's your assessment of how medical education came through that, and and where things stand today?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that the uh, a lot of medical education had been changing. Like I said, in the last decade or so, this need to to look and Innovate and and rethink how we do medical education, and I think the pandemic accelerated a lot of that, even if you weren't quite ready. Uh, so certainly the delivery of of content, the delivery of of how we do things, and figuring out what things can be done virtually or asynchronously. But at the same time, it was not just one pandemic, right? It was a pandemic of accessibility for patients. It was a pandemic of social justice, um, and so you know we were grappling with all those issues, and so we see a lot of a really call coming even from students to say, we've got to address these topics. We can't pretend they're not there. And so really a, uh, you know, a new anti-racism task force, social determinants of health, environmental justice, um, and social justice are, I think, themes that have emerged over the last couple of years uh, since the pandemic started that we've, that we've been grappling with how to incorporate them into our curriculum. As you said, there's so much there. And so how can we fit these all in um, and give, you know, the basic science, the do that they need, that foundational science component, um, but realizing that these other topics are also foundational. And so um, I think we're still grappling with that. There was a nice paper written by Lucy et al. Uh, last year in academic medicine, really calling for like a 10 point plan over the next 10 years to say that the pandemic, it exposed a lot of fault lines in the medical education system. And we can, um, take the opportunity to look at those and, and identify, I think, what was exposed and how can we address it moving
0: forward. So what are some early steps for addressing that? Because that is a lot to kind of add to the plate.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, what we've tried to do is so much of medical education, I think, has been a lot of facts and a lot of uh, faculty being able to present research. And so seeing what we can pare down on, on the bread and butter, knowing that you know, concepts are more important than facts. Facts may change or the details of what we know about them may change. Um, And so where can we leave space for these discussion topics? That I think if we don't address these social determinants of health and other topics, if we don't address, then students are left worrying about them and wondering them on their own and spending a lot of energy thinking and learning about them outside of the curriculum. So why not find space for them in the curriculum? And so, um, you know, we really, with our focus is, to bring more clinical experiences into the first 18 months of our students curriculum. It also means bringing some foundational sciences back into the clinical part of the curriculum. And so just this week, we're launching a new session on how to care for incarcerated persons because at Ohio State, um, we do have uh, people who are incarcerated and students may be engaging with those patients. Um, And so having a formal curriculum on that um, is something that we found some space for. We've also found space for a social determinants of health session. Um, and it's it's one thing to have it in the first two years when you're doing mostly classroom learning and a little bit of patient care, but it's another thing to revisit it when you're seeing patients every day. And we found that the students are very hungry for that type of learning. They don't necessarily need or want another lecture on asthma. And there's <laughs> other resources where they can refresh. And so perhaps let's have a discussion about you know, how do we get our patients who have food insecurity uh, healthy food. And so, uh, yeah, we're making space for it and um, and really trying to trim down stuff that maybe we don't need to revisit for the third time.
0: Aside from that bucket of issues that you just outlined, are there other expectations that have changed on the part of students? Are there other things that they're looking for?
1: Yeah, you know, I think, um, I think that's been brewing for a long time, but students, you know, especially when they get to the clinical uh, part of their training, it feels at times more like a job than school and struggling with where are their places on the clinical teams are they a crucial component of that team do their supervisors make them feel that way um, such that they're engaged and want to be there or do they feel like you know there's parts of their day that are wasted and they'd rather be spent you know studying from a book or studying from their notes um, so we're seeing I think students just be very uh, more vocal advocating for their su- themselves and their time uh, such that you know we really have to I think be able to justify the time that we're bringing them in to the in-person learning has to be meaningful for them where they not only are learning, but they feel like they're helpful. And, and if we can't do that, then we have to rethink, you know, does it make sense to have them in the hospital six days a week, you know, mirroring the resident schedules, or was that a relic of previous times that we can rethink?
0: Yeah. Speaking of previous times, I'm just wondering, you know, to what extent you think this represents a cultural shift, the idea that uh, instead of just going to med school and following the program, uh, that students there seem to be more of a two way street here, more receptivity on the part of the leadership and faculty to what students want, and students also feeling more empowered to speak up about it
1: absolutely, I think we have felt that at o s u for the last decade um in part because when we you know launched a very innovative disruptive curriculum, it opened the door for students to get feedback um, about you know what they thought what innovations they thought were useful and which ones they felt were They were questioning. And I think sometimes students are, you know, just want it the way it was, but many students have really embraced it and actually use that to catalyze. And so, again, a lot of our initiatives about, like, you know, bias and how we um, calculate uh, estimated kidney function, for example, in um, patients of different ethnicities, you know, they are initially student driven. So we are seeing students as like wanting to be partners in their education, very open to not only giving feedback, but coming up with solutions. Uh, and so I think that's been a fun, a fun part of it. I think the other thing we've been seeing that's, that's a little bit more worrisome is just the uh, level of, I think, burnout and anxiety and depression in students that I think historically we were told and you know a study from the late 80s talked about um, students came to medical school no more burnt out or depressed than the general population, but then they became that way, suggesting that medical school made them that way or or contributed to those developments. Um, but I think that students are coming. Perhaps the general population is more stressed.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. There's much more of that,
1: or more burnt out than ever before, or they you know, or that population is because it feels like they're coming to us um, with much less reserve and resilience to deal with problems, um, and perhaps that's the pandemic. Impacts to, to some extent. But I do think that's the other thing that we're balancing is that, you know, acknowledging when students are giving feedback, is it coming from a place of anxiety and burnout? Or is it coming from a place of an opportunity to, to be more innovative, to change and to listen to them? Um, so is, I think it'll be a tension we, we deal with uh, forever. But uh, it's something I've noticed and felt uh, more intensely in the last few
0: years. I know you're also concerned about the competition increasing in the mid-ed landscape. Tell us more about that
1: this generation of students coming to us, I think they've had competition uh, to the higher level than any. I, I am, a, am a parent of uh, rather young children, nine to 13, but as I see them getting into middle school and high school, I see the levels of competition and the expectations put on high school students and in, in university students and beyond. So I think they've come and they're, uh, you know, been living their whole lives this way. Um, and so it's almost second nature to them to be Competitive to worry about every little thing and how it might impact their future career. Um, you know, medical school and in healthcare in general, I think they're very driven students. Um, so it, it's almost like we're at a tipping point where um, it's maladaptive or it has been maladaptive, but it comes to a head in medical school. Um, and so you know, it's pushed medical schools to be more attuned to that, to increase our student affairs presence, to increase our well-being program. But I do think we have to acknowledge that if students are coming to us way more stressed out than they had in previous decades, then um, adding a little bit of programming here and there is a bit reactive. Um, and I think that, you know, we need to take a take a look at studying this more rigorously and deciding, you know, that we have to acknowledge uh, there's a difference in in medical students of today and and healthcare students of today, and to to be more proactive in what their needs are, um, and how we can help them get through what could be a very stressful training period.
0: So tell me more about the I am Well program for internal medicine residents. It sounds like that would kind of be along the same lines.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's um, similar to. Uh, you know, wellness programs they have in College of Medicine for students, but this is geared towards internal medicine residents. So at the graduate medical education level, knowing that residency is a huge increase in stress and work hours and responsibility. Many residents are prone to, you know, feeling burnt out, having anxiety, depression, et cetera. And it's really just a uh, really meant to be uh, proactive and explicit in our programming to keep residents well Uh, more holistically. So, you know, we do things like we have sessions, you know, to learn about these things, you know, topics about fatigue, or uh, substance use, um, depression, mental health, but we also have social events. Uh, we have a, a couple of retreats coming up for our residents and, you know, they'll have workshops. It's also a place to say, where is the system working for you and where is it not? So when I think about wellness for our residents, I think about there's professional well-being and there's personal well-being, and we could create programming and curricula and opportunities to learn more about that and for individuals to address that. But at the same time, we have to address the system and the culture. And so, for example, um, you know, lactation spaces in the hospital for residents and women who um, need a place uh, to do that after they've had a baby, figuring out how we can advocate for them to have a system that works for them so that they can get their work done not be disruptive to their patient care, yet, you know, continue to pump and feed their baby. And then it's also the culture part of it that, uh, you know, attending physicians won't um, negatively react when a resident needs to do something like that or needs to take, um, you know, an hour off. Uh, to get to a a mental health appointment, for example. So, you know, my role is to look at all four of those things and to, to, you know, simultaneously help the program address those.
0: So do you think, and this is probably too broad of a generalization, but that among the older faculty who perhaps were trained in a more stoic culture, you know, you just push through and it's all about the work, that they need some education about how to be more flexible and aware of these other dimensions to the student experience.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think they, um, they need, you know, residents who I think are in a good space can advocate for themselves very well. And that is a good learning opportunity for those, you know, older faculty who, uh, you know, might acknowledge that it was different when they trained, but they can appreciate that maybe this is a better way. I think we've had a good, very good response to that. But um, there's another side for residents or learners who, don't feel confident enough, aren't in a good space to advocate for themselves. They need someone to advocate for them, and so that's where you know I can step in, or program directors can step in, and advocate for them um, and be the bridge. So that they, you know, uh, if if it's going to be a tough conversation with a faculty member who's a little more resistant, the the resistance is aimed at me as opposed to the resident who might be struggling. So definitely a lot of um, of education. It's also a lot of positive role modeling, um, and then you know honest conversations when negative role modeling happens.
0: Hmm. Now, you mentioned mentorship before as a hallmark of OSU Wexner's medical education. Can you talk some more about how you utilize mentorship? And I also know you have a strong interest in coaching, and maybe you could break down the differences between those.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I think, you know, coaching and mentorship, they uh, may ultimately have the same outcome, but they're a very different process. And I think both of them, uh, one of the main benefits they provide is that personal connection. So it gets a learner or someone who needs something um, connected with uh, another person one-on-one. And I think that in and of itself, if it's a um, well-matched personality-wise and value-wise, and it's a positive relationship, I think that is really, really beneficial um, for all levels. And and a lot of the mentoring I do is for faculty at this point. Um, but we do have mentoring and coaching programs for our residents and our students. You know, I think when I mentor someone, I'm there to provide perhaps some experience, some wisdom, and to help them with something in the system. Um, so, you know, navigating a QI process to get data, for example, when I was uh, mentoring a a faculty member the other day uh, i I took on more of a mentorship role and i could I could talk her through these are the steps we have to take. I can help you get access to this. I can help you break down barriers and be someone to bounce ideas off of as opposed to when I'm coaching someone you know it's really more of a coachy driven process where they're defining you know the goals they have, what they're trying to achieve, and I walk them through how are they going to achieve them what you know, how are they going to address the barriers? What's going to motivate them when they're feeling less motivated? And they're coming up with all the answers. And so that is, I use really quite heavily uh, when we're thinking about behavior change uh, in someone, whether it be professional behavior change or it with a patient, you know, kind of a personal behavior change. And so we have programming and I think the mentorship has really always been there in medicine. The coaching has not always been there. And so that's something we're advocating for at multiple levels. Um, all of our students get a coach, uh, and that coach has eight students that they meet one-on-one with every six to eight weeks, all four years of the curriculum. Um, And they're available in between, of course. Um, But then when you get to be a resident or you get to become a faculty member, there is really no coaching program at our institution right now. It's what we're working to to develop so that if if you need something uh, more of a coach, either a short-term or long-term, that you have access to those opportunities.
0: I noted that one of the other things that you're interested in is lifestyle medicine. And perhaps you could give us a definition of that and also talk about what role that plays in making medicine, practicing medicine more enjoyable.
1: Yeah. So lifestyle medicine is a field of medicine that really takes the evidence base behind lifestyle behaviors. They have six pillars, um, nutrition, exercise, sleep, avoidance of risky substances, uh, stress reduction in emotional health and uh, community looking at those six pillars and saying um, what is the evidence to not only prevent but also treat and reverse disease and it's i think taking you know the field of scientific inquiry that we you know should have access to in medicine um, but perhaps have not given due attention to and saying you know how, how powerful are these things in preventing treating and reversing disease um, so it's you know gotten a lot of steam in the last five to ten years. It's not something I knew about uh, you know, when I was going through my training or even the first ten years of my faculty career. But I think it's it's a really exciting opportunity for us to revisit and get back to the basics. There's a wonderful cartoon that I think of every time I think of lifestyle medicine, and it's two men mopping the floor. And if you look, if you scan uh, out a little bit, you see that they're mopping the floor because a sink is overflowing and the sink, the faucet is turned on full blast. And so lifestyle medicine is going up there and turning off the faucet so that while- Go upstream. Yeah, going upstream exactly to the root cause, turning off the faucet so that while acute care medicine can mop up the floor, lifestyle medicine helps reduce the the need to mop up the floor by- um, getting to the root cause.
0: Now, is there a connection between the rise of this and the rise of awareness about social determinants of health? Because it does seem like there's some overlap there. In other words, if you know that food, nutrition is important, then you got to start asking questions about, okay, what are the obstacles to this patient having a healthier diet?
1: Um, no, I agree. There's a great overlap. And, and in the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, they have a, a subgroup called HEAL. I think it's Achieving Health equ- Equity Through Lifestyle um essentially is what it means. But it's it's acknowledging that um that you're right, that there is, you know, this structural racism that's in medicine um comes from not having access to healthy uh lifestyle, whether it be green spaces, safe outdoor places to walk or exercise, access to healthy food, food deserts. Those all I think play a role into you know the chronic disease burden and how it plays out into um, you know, communities of poverty or communities of color. And so absolutely i think you can't talk about lifestyle medicine without you know connecting them with the social determinants of health
0: so much change but you know so much of this seems to be heading in the right direction if i could put my two cents in <laughs> you know
1: yeah absolutely i
0: mean i know there's all the the whole other constellation of problems with how health systems operate and hospitals operate and insurance and all the rest of that but in terms of you know preparing students to become doctors consciousness of all these things you know seems to me it's going to serve them well
1: yeah yeah i think you know the more tools we can have in our tool belt to help patients not every patient is ready for behavior change for example and that's a huge part of lifestyle medicine um and so until they're ready uh we may have to rely on some of our like conventional tools in medicine but for those who aren't i'd, I'd hate to presume patients aren't ready um and not have the conversation with them about how powerful these things can be and i think that's the thing that was missing in my Education, and I think is still missing in traditional medical education is um, is truly the evidence behind this and how powerful they can be, um, and so that you have that tool to use for the patient who's ready. And if you have the skills to have that conversation about behavioral change, motivational interviewing, um, and helping them break down uh, those next steps and getting access to whatever they need, whether that be a social worker, a nutritionist, um, access to you know inexpensive healthy food, that is. I think just expands your opportunity to, to treat patients.
0: Plus if they're operating in a population health environment, it's also important for them to be focused this way too, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the opportunities are endless. If you, if you sort of, whether you think at the individual patient level or you think on the population health level, um, any and all between there are opportunities to, um, To improve health.
0: So as you probably know, um, osmosis is a teaching company, and one of our favorite questions is ask our guests to give us some direction and uh, pick a topic. Could be related to what you do. Could be totally unrelated, but say, you know, I wish people knew X. What would that be?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, looking through, you've got a number of of great resources, Um, but, you know, the pillars of lifestyle medicine, I I, I think, are one opportunity because, you know, that's something that's uh, needed by all by all levels, by all health types of healthcare workers, by all levels in medicine, um, there's a huge gap. So, you know, pick any pillar of lifestyle medicine and, and there's an opportunity, I think, to focus more on that. Um, and same with same with health coaching, you know, what are the skills uh, and the steps of health coaching so that you can walk a patient through a coaching conversation who's ready to, to make some change. We talk about it with smoking cessation in, in medical school and then we stop and we sort of pretend like, Um, It doesn't exist outside of smoking cessation. So how can we expand that and do that for any type of behavioral change?
0: So that's like the motivational interviewing and that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Kind of having not only assessing where a patient is, but having a conversation about meeting them where they are, what are their next steps? And some of it, you know, it's getting to know our patients at at the level of like what's important to you, um, what's going to motivate you. And what do you want for your life? Do you want to be able to play with your grandkids on the floor? Well, right now, you know, that would require some more physical mobility. So it's like, okay, walking, starting there at that vision of what they want, and then walking backwards to say, how do you get there? Um, And having them come up with the solutions and supporting them through that. Um, It's a skill set that I think, you know, we don't talk enough of. And I, you know, I know doctors are limited in time to have this conversation with every patient every time, but there are times when you, again, want to pull it out of your tool belt because it'll be the most impactful thing you do.
0: Right. Well, we're almost out of time. I wanted to give you one last shot at advice uh, for our audience of learners and early career professionals. I mean, you're dealing with students all the time. What are your sort of go-to pieces of advice?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think it depends on the level of learner, but, uh, yeah know, I definitely, you know encourage students to trust themselves and to trust uh, you know what they think is right uh, and not to not uh, succumb to maybe the anxiety or their chatter of like what they need to be doing or what they should be doing. So it's like trust your gut on what you internally think is right. And then um, really spend a moment to think about your interests and your strengths and your values. and use that. To align with your ultimate career path. What are your next steps in your career? Whether it be what residency are you going to? What type of training program? Is it urban? Is it community? Um, and then what do you like to do outside of direct patient care? Um, all of those should be informed by your, your values, your interests, and your strengths. And you should expect them to change. So, you know, I've seen, obviously, I haven't been interested in lifestyle medicine my whole career. And I've shifted from you know quality improvement to more medical education focused, and now health coaching, mentorship, and lifestyle medicine, um, and so that expectation that your your uh, interests and your strengths will change throughout your career is to be expected, and you know being open to that and and uh, willing to sort of let your career uh, go where it takes you, uh, I think is one of the the hallmarks and one of the protective factors against burnout and to having a purposeful, uh, really uh, enjoyable career in medicine and healthcare.
0: That's great advice. Really wonderful. And really appreciate you being here today to share all of that with us.
1: Thanks. It was great talking with you. And thanks for having me.
0: Sure thing. I'm Michael Carice. Thanks for checking out today's show. And remember, do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together.
1: If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.